We're going to do something unique this morning. I never do unique things, but we're going to do something unique this morning. Um, we're going to sing a song that I learned back when I first became a believer. You know, I, I, so I grew up, didn't grow up in church, didn't understand any of that stuff, didn't know church music at all. I knew Amazing Grace and a few things that we all hear. And a lot of the scripture we were singing back at that time came out of the Jesus movement and was really written around scripture. And one of my favorites is a song that I want to do this morning that's based on Psalm 19, and we're going to be in that psalm. And so Kylie is going to lead us through that right now, and we're going to come back to it again. But I uh, would like you to join us in, in singing this song out of Psalm 19. It's pretty catchy, and I think you'll catch on to it really quick. So why don't you stand? Can you stand and join us in this? Statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. So then honey and a honeycomb. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. I switched my mic off on that, if that's okay. You guys may be seated. So how many of you know that? You sang that long ago. That's an old song from your past. Boy, just a few of us ancient dinosaurs who know that song. Um, I loved a lot of the, the, the worship that came out of that period with the Jesus movement because so much of it was scripture-based. So we are in Psalm 19 today. So if you want to turn there um, in your phone or whatever, I'm going to be reading in a minute out of Psalm 19 in the NIV. If, by the way, um, if you're here and you're like, I do not have a Bible, a modern translation, we've got some on the back on the rollaway cart. They're kind of green, 
and we would love for you to have one of those. You could feel free to take one of those with you um, as you leave today. Um, we're also going to be, if you don't have a Bible, um, the notes actually has this psalm on it, and you can follow along and make notes on things. So if you're still, if you didn't get that on the way in, if you want to go grab a sheet, um, feel free to do so. But last week, this is our second week on Psalm 19, and we asked the question, is God knowable? I mean, we don't see Him, we don't feel Him, we don't hear Him audibly, at least I don't. Um, so how can He be known? Does He want to be known? And if He wants to be known, how can He be known? And so as we started last week, because we've been going through the Psalms this summer, Psalm 19 answers that question for us. It's kind of a master class on the topic. And we learn that God has made Himself known through His creation, which is what we talked about last week, verses 1 to 6, um, that He has revealed Himself. But this week it gets even better because he's going to talk about the major way that he has made himself known. And I do want to say one thing about this idea of like God communicating and making himself known and like why hasn't he not been clear? I'd say he's probably been more clear than most of us know in making himself known. Right now, this room is full of hundreds of radio waves of hundreds of radio stations that are cursing through our, going through our bodies into the air. But the reality is, is none of us hears that communication, right? And it's because the truth is, is you have to have the right instrument to receive a lot of communication. And if you don't have the right instrument to tune into it, you might not even know that that's there. And so the focus this morning in Psalm 19 is going to be on the Word of God and that this really is His primary way of, of communicating with us. So we're, that's what we're going to be focusing on. If you don't mind, I need to do a little bit of quick review because I don't know who was or wasn't here last week. So if you remember, this psalm breaks down into two distinct parts. It's going to talk about God's revelation of himself, and then it's going to talk about David's response in, in verses 12 to 14. And that first part, if you remember, is subdivided into two different sections. Verses 1 to 6, God's revelation through, um, through his works, through the skies, what's called the book of his works, and then his revelation, we're going to look at in verses 7 to 11, of himself through his word, the scriptures, which is the book of his word. And so Psalm 19, again, just a review, speaks primarily of two monumental truths, the revelation of God's glory in creation, and then God's glorious revelation of himself in his word. That's going to be our focus, and then it's followed by David's response. And that's why last week I said to me, this psalm is the Yosemite of the Psalms, if you've ever been there, an amazing valley, you know, El Capitan and Half Dome just dominate, those two things dominate that valley, and in this psalm, these two truths of how God reveals himself dominates um, this, this chapter, this psalm. And this psalm is really important because out of this psalm, we can identify the two primary ways that God does speak to us. Um, what's called general revelation or natural revelation is the witness of creation. That's verses 1 to 6, how God does speak to us about Himself very generally. We can learn about His beauty, His artistry, a few things we learned in Romans 1 last week. But He can only be generally known through that. That's why in those first six verses, the word that appears for Him, for God, is just God. It's the generic Hebrew word for God, Elohim, because He cannot be known intimately and personally through creation. But he can be intimately and personally known through his word, and that's the next one, his special revelation or biblical revelation. It's the witness of his word or the witness of the Bible. And this is how God can be made, is made known, has made him known more specifically. And that's why in verses 7 
to 14, you find a shift in David from referring to God generically to he uses now the name of God, the personal name of God through the rest of this psalm, Yahweh, the great I am, which is what we talked about this, last, uh, this whole last semester. So you see, anytime you see Lord in all capitals, that's Yahweh, that is his name that's behind that. And so what, what David is saying and what we learn is, is, is that the Bible, the word of God is God's personal revelation of himself to us and it's through his word that we get to know him more specifically um, and more clearly. It's through his word that we get to know um, his story. We get to know his ways, his attributes, his nature. We, you know, we know his names more intimately, which we, again, we studied last semester. We get to know his purposes. Um, we get to know what God values and what his priorities are. So this is all extremely significant. So it's important that we have the word of God because through it, we not only know him, but we know the reality of the universe that he's created. I know more about who I am truly created to be and how things are meant to be. So the word of God is extremely, extremely important. And I want to say one quick thing before I jump in. I've already said several. This is not review. This is something I think is really important um, because right now in our culture, you know, we live in a culture, I mean, I, I love our culture and I love our country, but we're very shaped by it and formed by it. But there's been a lot of seismic shifts in the last several decades. Um, and one of them is this, is that right now in our culture, that people believe that the works of God interpret the Word of God. So stand over and interpret the Word of God. So let me explain. So in other words, in our culture right now, so I am a work of God, okay? So my feelings... Um, interpret the Bible for a lot of people, and actually my feelings stand in judgment over the Word of God. Or my experiences, I, a lot of people, they use their experience to interpret the Bible, and their experience stands in judgment on the Word of God. Or my, um, my own reasoning, I choose to allow that to be the primary thing as a work of God. I let that interpret the Scripture and stand in judgment on Scripture. Our culture and our culture's values stands above and interprets Scripture in the way things are in our world right now. Um, and stands in judgment over it. And I want to tell you, that's the opposite of how God designed things to be because the works of God, the creation of God is His general revelation. It's the Word of God that's His specific revelation, and this is His primary revelation, and this is to be the revelation that interprets and stands over the other things, the works of God. Does that make sense? So if you leave here with just one sentence in mind or sentence that you take away, it's this, that the Word of God interprets the works of God. Okay? His word interprets my heart. His word interprets my experience and my, the way I think about things. Does that make sense? So I think that's important to say before we jump in. So let's get into Psalm 19. Um, again, it's those two breakdowns that we're going to get into. Today we're going to focus on the glorious revelation of God and His word, and then we're going to slide down into David's response to that revelation. So I would like to invite you to stand with me. And open to Psalm 19, turn your phone to that. Again, I'm reading out of the NIV, and I'm going to start in verse 7 and go through verse 14, which is our text this morning. And here's what David penned. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. And the commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. 
Keep your servant from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So may these words of my mouth, this meditation of my heart, may this be pleasing in your sight, my Lord, my Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And this is the word of the Lord. Can we say amen to that? All right, you may be seated. So I'm going to start verses 7 to 9, which is comprised of six really powerful lines, um, each of them having a descriptor of the Word of God, a quality of it, and then a benefit that flows from it. And the descriptor, the first one is simply this, the law or the Torah. It talks about the law of God or the Torah, which is kind of the all-embracing, it's the umbrella, um, all-comprehensive term that is used for God's Word, as David had it at that particular time. And the rest of those descriptors are just kind of synonymous with the Torah or the law, okay? So I'm not going to spend any time on those. The one that is unique is verse 9 where it says that it talks about the fear of the Lord. And a lot of commentators say even that is synonymous with what he's trying to do with the law because the fear of the Lord is the appropriate human response to an encounter with the Word of God. And again, I always feel like I have to define that because just those words on the page can conjure up a lot of thoughts about what that means. Robert Alter, the great uh, Hebrew scholar, says that in Jewish thought, what that meant primarily was a deep awe and reverence for God, okay? So a deep awe and reverence for God. So I want to take a few minutes to look at the qualities that are listed. So verse 7, where it says, the law of the Lord is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that the the Bible, that all Scripture, it is God-breathed, and that the Scripture of God, that it is profitable, it is useful for teaching, it is useful for rebuking, for saying, Garen, don't go down that path. It's useful for correction, Garen, here's how to get back on the path, and it's useful for training in righteousness so that the servant of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good work because it's perfect. The Hebrew word for perfect is tamim, and I only tell you that for this particular reason. Tamim means complete and whole because Psalm 1830 says, as for God, His ways are tamim, they're perfect. His ways are perfect and His law is flawless. And so the perfection of the Word of God simply flows out of the perfection of who God is. Does that make sense? So that's why His Word is perfect. Then David says the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. Um, it's the Hebrew word aman from where we get our word amen. We just sang a song about that, right? I read the scripture. We said amen. It means, that word means something that is sure and firm, something that is rock solid, that is rock solid, that doesn't give way or collapse, something that can bear the full weight of who I am and of my life and can be steady and trustworthy and all of that. Psalm 119.86 says this, all of your commands are aman, are trustworthy, all of them. And Psalm 119, 138, the statutes you have laid down are righteous. They are fully aman. They're fully trustworthy. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, meaning morally right, morally straight as opposed to crooked. And then the commands of the Lord are radiant. The CEV says shine brightly kind of like the light on your cell phone. Have you ever accidentally turned that on or had a grandchild accidentally turn that on and shine that like right in your eye? Pretty bright, right? That, that that's what the, the word of the Lord is like. And then I want to hit the benefits that are spelled out in these verses. And notice that all these benefits, at least in the NIV, rightly so, are, they're participles. 
which I didn't pay well enough attention to my English class when I graduated to know what a participle was. I learned when I took Greek what it is. It's a word with an ing ending. So when you see an ing ending, you know it's a participle. And what a participle does, among other things, it, it expresses continuous ongoing action. So these benefits are ongoing. So verse 7, that the word of Lord, that it refreshes the soul. The Hebrew refers to spiritual renewal. So, so that the Bible is able to restore to refresh, to renew, to rekindle my soul. Robert Alter says it means restoring to full vigor and vitality the flagging spirit. I think we've all been there. So it's able to restore, renew, rekindle my soul. It's also, we're told, making wise the simple. We live in an age full of knowledge at your fingertips with Google. A lot of knowledge, not a lot of wisdom anymore, I've heard it said. Um, not wisdom being deep spiritual insight into the way God has created things and designed things so that I can live well in this world. In Psalm 119, 99 to 100, David wrote this, that because of the Word of God, I have more insight than all of my teachers, that I can even have more understanding than my elders. Pretty amazing. And then verse 8, giving joy to the heart. The Hebrew can be translated gladness. Gladness. You know, the word on the street about the Bible in our culture is that this book is a burden and actually is oppressive. And I want you to know that the opposite is actually quite true, that the Word of God, and I'm going to come back to this in a minute, is designed, it's meant to be a song in my heart and not a burden on my back. And that the person who walks with God and knows Him and loves Him and is intimately connected to Him through His Word is a person that's connected to a deep well and reservoir of joy and um, of gladness, deep gladness. And then finally it says, giving light to the eyes, that the Scripture illumines my path, it guides me on my way. Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp for my feet and it's a light on my path. Now you probably noticed, I just stuck to verses 7 to 8 and didn't hit verse 9. And the reason is, there's a reason because verse 9 doesn't have any benefits in it. It just talks about the qualities of the word of the Lord. And I really feel like that it's, it's day, verse 9 functions to summarize and wrap up what he said in those first two verses, especially the last line. But I want to start at verse 9. So let's look. The fear of the Lord, it says, is pure, enduring forever. Enduring forever. The word Hebrew word for pure is tahor. And again, I only share that. Because not only is the fear of the Lord pure, but Psalm 12, 6 says, the words of the Lord are tahor. They're flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. And it's not just this awe and reverence for the Lord that endures forever, but Psalm 40, verse 8, a scripture Al quoted quite a lot. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. It endures forever. And then the last half of verse 9, to me that all-important line, because here he's wrapping all this up and he's bringing it all together. And here's what he says, the decrees of the Lord are firm and all of them, all of them are righteous. That word firm in Hebrew is the Hebrew word emet, which means true. Actually, it is a noun here. It's truth. And so literally it says, it says literally that the word of God is truth. It's truth. And that means that it's utterly dependable. 
In the words of Francis Schaeffer, who in the 60s saw the relativism coming in our culture and the way truth got used in a different way that relativized it, Francis Schaeffer coined the phrase, it is true truth. It is true truth. It's what is real because it's based on reality. C.S. Lewis, in his reflection on the Psalms, said this of God's words. He said, God's words are rock-bottom reality, being rooted in his own nature, and are therefore as solid as that nature which he has created. And so because this is true truth, because this is real and reality reflects reality, because of that, it is a firm footing for me. And C.S. Lewis says that. He goes on in Reflections of the Psalms, says that to come to the Word of God, he says, is to touch firmness, like the pedestrian's delight in feeling the hard road beneath his feet after a false shortcut has long entangled him in muddy fields. I love that imagery. So I just love how David ends this section of, of the psalm at the end of verse 9. And this is my rendering of that last line. The decrees of the Lord are truth, firmly conforming to reality. And moreover, all of them are right and they are good. They are good. In every possible sense, the Word of God, it is just, it is right. And the thing that the old philosophers were looking for, it is good and it is beautiful and it is true. It is good and beautiful and true. Um, unlike what you commonly hear in our culture, that even my dad told me before I became a follower of Jesus, and I love my dad, and he ended up coming into a relationship with God personally at the end of his life, but my dad used to tell me, this book is old, it's past its prime, it has nothing to say to the modern world. That's what I grew up hearing and actually believing. But you couldn't be any further from the truth because I have found personally, and if you know my journey, you know how much of an intellectual component I had, that, that the Word of God is reality. It is grounded in reality that this is reality. And so my message to you this morning is, is you can stake your life on the Word of God. Okay? You can build your life on it. You can bank on the Word of God, that it will never let you down. In the words of Jesus, who said this, whoever hears and obeys my words is, a life, is like the person who builds their house on a rock. The storms come, the rain comes, the wind blows, and yet it does not fall because it is standing on a firm foundation. That's what Scripture says um, about itself. It's stable, it's well-grounded, well-grounded direction for living. Um, gives real-life practical wisdom. It illuminates one's path. I'm just kind of referencing back to this psalm. It illuminates our path. It renews the weary soul. It's a wellspring of deep joy and gladness. That's what Scripture says about itself. It's what I found to be true. It transforms the lives of those who will take it in, who will absorb it, who will hear it, who will read it, who will, who will study it, who will meditate on it, and who will memorize it. To know and follow the Bible is to live the truly good life. I want to say something very brief on the modern quest. Because again, we live in a culture, especially in the West, that there's been a radical realtering of the way truth and reality are seen. Even still, the most of the world does not think this way, but it's what's common in the West. And what's common in the West is what is that there is no ultimate truth out there that I have to conform myself and my life to. The emphasis in our culture now is, is that the only truth that matters is the truth that's in here. We hear a lot about my truth. 
And by saying that, I am not downplaying my experience, my feelings, my reasoning. I'm not downplaying that at all. But that has become the center of truth in our culture. And everything outside of me needs to conform to that truth, right? That's where our culture has come to. And so there's this modern quest for personal fulfillment, which I understand. It's a human longing for personal fulfillment and for freedom. But the problem is, is that quest is a, is a negative freedom. It's a freedom from and not a freedom to. And Scripture talks about a freedom to. Freedom from is a freedom from any authority, from any outside source that might speak into my life, from any truth of any kind that is out there, um, any rules, any opinions. But again, that's a false freedom. And what Psalm 19 does is it says the Word of God is truth. And it grounds the idea of truth and of freedom in, in the Word of God and in the reality of who He is. And so let me illustrate it this way, um, I, and I steal this from Tim Keller. Tim Keller talks about um, fish, that for a fish to flourish and to thrive, it needs to live in the environment and in the constraints for which it was created. And tell me, what's the environment and the constraints that fish are created for? It's, it's one word, starts with a W. Okay, yeah, it's not Jesus. Usually in church, the answer is Jesus. It's not Jesus, it's water, okay? That as long as a fish is in that environment and in those constraints, that it thrives and flourishes. But if you take a fish out of that and put it on dry land, what happens to the fish? He flounders and eventually will die, right? Because it's created to live in a particular environment, particular constraints. And Scripture says this, that the environment I'm created for is actually a living, breathing relationship with the creator of the universe, for him to be my, 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 my Abba Father, my Daddy, and for me to be his child and live in that relationship. That's the environment we're created for. And there are constraints the way he's designed the universe, and Scripture gives us those constraints. And as long as I live in that environment and those constraints, then I am actually truly free and that's where true joy and gladness comes from. So Scripture would stand against our cultural um, emphasis on the lack of, of any kind of restraint. That's why James chapter 1, verse 25, he calls, he, sa- he calls the Bible the perfect law that gives freedom. And why David in Psalm 119.45 says, I will walk in freedom for I sought out your precepts. Um, if you know anybody in music, I mean, I, I do percussion, took up guitar, Several years ago, I'm not very good at it, but if you know anybody in music, what you know is, is a person, to, if, to have the freedom to play like our worship people do up here, they had to put themselves in environments and constraints, time constraints, like I've got to practice every week, right? And you do that over time, and eventually you gain the freedom to just play without music, and does that make sense? So it's the same way, I would say, with the Word of God. Okay, so I'll get back to our song, verses 10 and 11. Because he wraps up his discussion of the Word of God in, verse, in these two verses. And here he's speaking of some additional benefits. And I want to take them in reverse. I want to do 11 first. Verse 11 first. So verse 11 says, By them your servant is warned. God's Word keeps me from the wrong path. It keeps me from living against the grain of how He's designed things so that I can live well. And second, in keeping them there is great reward. So the Word of God points me to the good life, to true life, right, to true success. And I'm sure David had in mind as he wrote this, Joshua 1.8, which says that if you will keep His Word on your lips, if you will meditate it on it day and light, if you will be careful to obey all that's written on it, then you will be truly, in a deep sense, prosperous and successful in all that you do. Okay, so back to verse 10, because this to me is the most crucial part of this psalm. Verse 10. 
where David says this about the Word of God. They're more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than the honey of the honeycomb. And here's what David is saying the Word ought to be to us in these two things. That the Word of God ought to be our treasure and it ought to be our pleasure. First, our treasure. It's more valuable than gold. Psalm 119.72 says a similar thing. The law of your mouth, or your law of your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. You know, gold was the most valuable commodity in that day, literally, for them. It still is the most valuable commodity, but we don't deal in gold, do we? So a lot of us don't have a sense of the intrinsic worth. So I think if he were writing in the modern world, he would say that the word of God is worth more than a huge life-altering windfall of money. Um, the power thing you hear on news sometimes. Um, Powerball, is that right? Is that national or is that just Kansas? I don't know. It's at a record high. Um, it's at a record high. And so David would say it's more, the word of God is more valuable than getting that kind of a windfall into your life. And then secondly, the word of God is to be our pleasure. He said it's more succulent than honey. I like what David said in Psalm 119, 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Sugar wasn't available then in that part of the world, in much of the world, frankly. So the only way, the sweetest thing they could get and the most common sweetener was actually honey from honeybees. I mean, even in our own culture, a century or so ago, if you read any of the Little House in the Prairie books or you read them to your granddaughters, right? You learned that on the frontier, if you were unable to get sugar at the general store or something, the way they got sugar is what was called sugar snow. Um, that in the winter, when the snow came, that meant the, sa- the maple trees were going to start losing their sap, right? And they would catch it in buckets, and if you boil it down, you would get sweetener from it. So it's kind of similar to this, um, kind of similar. But here's what he's saying is that to the person who knows God, that his words are better than the most sumptuous dessert. His words are better than the most sumptuous dessert. I'm curious, what are some of your favorite desserts? What are some of your favorite desserts? I want to hear some things. Cheesecake with what? Just plain or is there a topping, Caitlin? Strawberries, okay. Strawberry cheesecake. Somebody else. Hey, and by the way, whatever you say, there's no judgment here today, okay, on whatever you say. So somebody else. Brownies, okay, which is chocolate, right? Uh, I think vanilla is a little better. Um, I told you, no judgment, no judgment from this stage, right? Brownies. What else? Donuts. Oh, yeah. Just had some yesterday with the grandkids. What else? Ice cream. What kind of ice cream, Dane? Any kind. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, one of our kids when they were little. We're like, what do you want for for your birthday? And they said, ice cream. And we said, what kind? And they said, just lots. (laughs) Doesn't matter. Just lots, right? But got to be vanilla, French vanilla, homemade, right? Okay. Any other things, favorites? Yeah, I I haven't heard pie. Adam, give me your top pie, man. Oh, apple, right. Hot out of the oven with, with vanilla ice cream on the top. Yeah, definitely. Or for me, it's pecan pie or coconut cream. I mean, pecan you know what you do with pecan pie? You take the nasty pecans and you scrape them off and you just eat the goop on crust. There's nothing like that in the world. Christy Wright actually made me a pie like that once. Um, blackberry cobbler, red velvet cake. There's nothing like a good snickerdoodle. 
they melt in your mouth, right? Chocolate chip cookies fresh out of the oven. I mean, do you see why, that's what David's saying. Do you see why Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 2 to 3, like newborn babies crave spiritual milk. Crave it because it's by that that you grow up in your salvation now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. So here's what David is saying with all this language to me. It was his way of saying that God's word was his desire and it was his delight. His desire and his delight. Psalm 119, 14, I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in riches. Psalm 119, 54, your decrees are the theme of my song wherever I lodge. Psalm 119, 16, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Psalm 119, 24, your statutes are my delight. Psalm 119, 97, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. Jen, I was trying to look up the scripture you referenced, and I got it wrong, but I found Psalm 119, 47, I delight in your commands because I love them, because I love them. That's what David's talking about. Your word is my desire, and it's my delight. And how do you know if you desire and delight God's word, if it's your treasure and your pleasure? I think it's pretty easy. Because when you get in, your heart is stirred by it, you're drawn to it, you're drawn to its beauty, you long to be in it, because when you get in it, you know that you can mine some amazing treasures that are in there, and that you can enjoy some deep pleasures, delicious pleasures. That's, what, that's how I think you know. And this week, as I meditated on this, this language, because to me, this is so central to this psalm, um, it hit me that that language of gold is actually the language of pursuit. Because you chase after wealth. So David pursued, he wanted to be in this book. And that, that, those, the talk of honey, that's all about hunger. A hunger for the word of God. So I'm curious, how are you doing on those things this morning? Really in your gut, is it your treasure and your pleasure? Is it your desire and your delight? Do you pursue it, and are you hungry for it? Kylie, as we think about that, come on up. We want to sing, sing that song again. Would you stand with me? And hopefully this is a little more meaningful as we've walked through this. Statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. 
the commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, than the honeycomb. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, and the honeycomb. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, and the honeycomb. may be seated. Can we thank Kylie for she's for doing that? That's awesome. Isn't this a great psalm? Not a great song. Bob Gunger wrote that, by the way, a pastor from uh, down in Tulsa. His children, the Gungers, did some worship stuff like in the 90s and early 2000s. But um, anyway, so David's just talked about the word of the Lord, the revelation of God, and now comes his response in verses 12 to 14. He just penned some of the greatest poetry ever written, C.S. Lewis says, some of the most deep theological insights, especially on the Word of God. And so his, I love that, that his response to that revelation, particularly the Word of God, um, that it evokes in him, the same type of response it should evoke in us. Um, and remember, these psalms are journal entries, right? So I love that David's been writing this deep theology, and all of a sudden he stops, and now he's got to pin his response to the Lord. So I just, I love that with him. So as he turns to his own heart after reflecting on the Word of God, as he turns to his own heart, I think it causes him, uh, it brings a sigh, right? Because look at verse 12. Who can discern their own errors? Jeremiah 17.9 says, the human heart It's desperately wicked, and it's deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? Who can understand it? I think David intuitively knew that. It's almost like he knew the truth of God expressed in Hebrews 4.12, where it says that the Word of God is alive and active. It's like a double-edged sword. It pierces um, even to the dividing of soul and spirit, to the dividing of bone and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Or the NLT puts it, exposes our innermost thoughts and our innermost desires. So I think what David is saying, and the reality is, is true self-knowledge can only come from an encounter with God, our Creator, the one who designed us, the one who truly knows my heart. And it not only, but it mainly happens as I encounter Him through His Word, through His Word, which is His truth, especially as the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and he like massages my heart with it and he applies it to my own heart. And in doing that, that he uncovers and he surfaces and he exposes things within my own heart 
that God is desiring to change, right? Attitudes that I have, my deep motivations, the things that really drive my life, the loves that I have, the things that I, I actually love more than Him, the idols of my heart, the rationalizations and all my self-justifications, my priorities, all of that stuff, that the Word of God helps to, to bring all of that out with the help of the Spirit of the Lord. So David knows that this shows who I am, warts and all, that it reveals to us the sinfulness of our heart. And as I encounter God through His Word, and as it uncovers, surfaces, and exposes me, I have the same response David has, the same two things he, things he seeks in the rest of verse 12 and 13, where he asks for God's pardon and God's protection. First, the pardon. Forgive my hidden faults. Lord, the things I don't know that I do, things which one commentator pointed out are hidden, not so much because they're too small for me to see, but because they're too characteristic of me to even register on my radar. That's cruel. And then second, he cries for protection. Keep your servant. I love that word servant, by the way, because all through this, he has a very clear idea, crystal clear, who is God and who isn't. Who's the creator and the master and who's the servant? So would you keep your servant also from willful sins? Lord, the things I do know about myself but that I choose day after day after day to keep doing, right? We all know what that's like. And then his next words, Lord, may they not rule over me. And the result of this pardoning and protection, he says, is then I will be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And he here is leaning wholly on God's grace and mercy, which takes us to verse 14. And to me, it's almost like he puts a bow on this whole section of his reflection response where he says, may the words of my mouth and the, this meditation of my heart, may it be pleasing in your sight. And here's what I really love about this, because as David has reflected on God's revelation of himself and his works, his beauty and his glory, and in his word, how perfect and beautiful and desirable that is, is he says, as I've looked at your revelation of yourself, it is pleasing to me. So, Lord, may my thoughts and my attitudes and the things I think about, may they be pleasing to you. Isn't that cool how he offers that back to the Lord? I just, I love how he does that. And then he ends the last six words. He addresses God, and I love this too. Because after thinking about the sinfulness of his heart, it would have been so easy for him to say, Oh, Lord, my jury and my judge, right? My scrutinizer and my sentencer. Because that's how most people look at God. It's like he's this, this heavy dude up there waiting to bring the heavy weight on you, right? That's not how he ends it because he knows intimately God, right? He's a man after God's own heart. He says this, oh, Lord, can you say these last words with me? I hope this translation similar. Oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Can we say that again? My rock and my redeemer. Not my scrutinizer and my sentencer. No, my security and my savior. That's who he leans into. I love the way he ends this psalm. Isn't it rich? Is Psalm 19 not rich? Does it not deserve two weeks? I'm sorry. Somebody said, when Garen comes back from a, from a vacation, they're kind of long because I've had a lot of time to think about it, okay? But is this not Psalm not rich and not deserving of our time and attention and our commitment? And is not the Word of God so rich and so good? I, I'm just constantly brought to awe. But let's not miss the main point this morning. The main point is this, that God, God desires for us Here's the things he most desires, for us to walk with him and to be formed into the image of his son, to become like Jesus. 
for him to craft us into that. Those are the two most important things to him. And I want you to hear me this morning. You cannot walk with God intimately and you cannot be formed in the image of his son if you do not have a regular diet of the word of God. It's not possible. It is not possible, okay? You cannot walk with God and not be consistently in his word. That's why Jesus said in John 8, 31, he says that if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. It's essential to walking with him. And you cannot also be formed by God in the likeness of his son without being in the word. You can't do it. That's why Jesus said, if you abide in me and I abide in you, because I'm the vine, then you'll bear much fruit. But without me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. Over the years as I discipled people, I used to tell them that God is forming you. For If you follow Jesus, he's forming you in the image of his son. And that's like a, a, a guy taking a chisel to a statue to create the image that he wants. And I said, there's, in my mind, there's four primary tools of God forming you. Prayer, the community, trial and trouble. Sorry about that one, but it's reality. And then finally, the word of God being daily and regularly in the word of God. That's what he uses. He uses this to chisel away at who you are to make you who he wants you to be. And that's why Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, 17. He says, Lord, I want you so badly to sanctify your followers, my people. I want you to sanctify them, make them holy, make them like me by your truth. And your word is truth. Your word is truth. So can you bow your head with me and close your eyes? I don't normally do this, okay? I, when I became a believer, the tradition was this was every week. This isn't normal, but I'd like you to bow your head and close your eyes because I would like us to ask three questions because we worship the Lord not just by hearing, but by obeying and responding. So here's my three questions. And trust me, things I've been leveraging in my own heart for quite a while. Number one, what are you most in need of in your life, in your soul right now? What are you most in need of in your soul right now? Is your soul parched, dying on the vine? Are you lacking wisdom? You're making poor choices and you're needing to know how to order your life to live well? Are you lacking joy in your daily life and in your walk with God? Are you needing guidance, guidance and light for your journey right now? Maybe all of those and maybe none of those. I don't know what it is, but I want to point you to the Word of God because this psalm says that the Word of God is the thing that does those things. Two. Do you know what it means to delight in his word? In your gut, do you know what it means to delight in his word? Can you say that the word of God is your treasure and your pleasure? Can you honestly say, it's my desire and my delight? Is it your pursuit and are you hungry for it? And we all go through periods where, that's, where we're, we're, we're struggling with that, right? And if not, I want to give you a challenge. Psalm 119, 119, verse 18. I pray this almost every morning before I get in the Word, where David says, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. I don't just want to read a book. I want to meet you in it, and I want to delight in it. I want to find treasure and pleasure in it. Would you please open my eyes to see wonderful things? So make that a prayer. And then finally, are you in the Word of God on a daily basis? Okay, it's not a checkbox. It's not earning a, you know, earning a badge from God. It is to meet and encounter your Lord. Are you in the words of Joshua 1.8? Are you keeping His Word always on your lips? Are you meditating on it day and night? Are you doing everything you can to, to obey 
every last bit of it. I'm just curious, is there anyone here this morning who would say, I need to recommit myself today to a daily intake of the Word of God? Is there anybody who would say that? Today, I need to put a stake in the ground and recommit myself to a daily intake of the Word of God. And if it helps you put a stake in the ground, and again, I hardly ever do this, but if it would help, raise your hand. It's just a way of saying, I just need to take His Word a lot more seriously. Anybody, no judgment up here at all. Anybody like, I need to get back in the Word. I'm not taking it serious. I need, I need to put that stake back in the ground. The Lord sees and knows that. So, if that's you, you know, get back in the Word. Above all else, get an accountability partner, somebody that can help keep you accountable to that. You're in the Word together. Would you stand with me? I'd like us to pray. Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you for your revelation of yourself, that you do make yourself known in creation generally, but more specifically in your Word. I thank you for it. I thank you for how you have transformed my life after coming to you and how this book has been so essential in you working on slowly remaking me into the image of your Son and helping me to learn what it means to walk with you. Lord, may 12th be a place of where the Word of God is central. Keep us that way. And that your word is what interprets our work, world and the works, that that's how we see and do things here. Um, even though it's against the grain of our culture, Lord, help us to be centered on your word. If there's anybody here, Lord, who just is struggling with finding delight, may I pray that you would help them to begin to see the wonders of everything you put in there, that they would just mine out those treasures, that they would find great pleasure in it. But Lord, we want to be people of the word. We want to become a biblical kingdom of community, community of kingdom people who are joining you in the restoration of all things, one person, one place at a time. So I pray in the name of Jesus, the living word, pray in his name, amen. All right, 12th, you are sent. Let us be people who are rich in the word, okay?